Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey, gang, Mike and Mark with you once again. Glad you're with us. Hope you're all doing very well. Well, our guest on this episode of one of baseball's really great stories, Brad Osmus, was a 48th round pick out of high school. And Mark, he was one of those guys who really wasn't supposed to make it, but then he does. And then he goes on to play 18 years in the big leagues and he's managed as well. Mike, I'm always fascinated by longevity in whatever you do with work. And for Brad Osmus to spend 18 years in the big leagues, and there's aspects to him that are are really going to be cool to dive into. But one of those is that he played a very tough position as a catcher. And one time he went on the disabled list at the time, his whole career. And that was April of his last year playing in the big leagues with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Incredible story. And he is going to dive in to all of those aspects, including the best pitcher he's ever caught. Brad, 18 seasons in the big leagues, 35 postseason games. You had a World Series. You had a lot of baseball under your belt. A lot of special things you've seen and been a part of. In your mind, what stands out as your signature moment in the game? I think there's no question it was the game four division series uh, down to the final out in the bottom of the ninth. And uh, I was playing with the Houston Astros against the Atlanta Braves 2005 and and hit a very unexpected home run because I was not known for my hitting, let alone my my power, I think a lot of people were probably shocked that Phil Garner didn't pinch hit for me with, with two outs down one run. Um, he claimed that I was hot in the second half and it was swinging the bat as well as anyone. Uh, so I think that's probably my signature moment. A little side story that. So Clyde Drexler, basketball great, lives in Houston, yeah. had dinner with him a couple of years after he was at the game and admitted to me that when I came to hit, he left and got on got on the elevator because he didn't expect me to do anything. <laughs> Oz, take us into that at bat. Uh, even on the on deck circle, um, you're you're probably questioning what your manager is going to do. But uh, who was it against? What was the count? Uh, dive into that whole situation if you want, might. Um, I was obviously aware of the fact that that Gar may pinch hit for me. Certainly been pinch hit for in the past. Uh, uh, Farnsworth was the pitcher, hard throwing, right-handed pitcher, um, you know, mid to upper nineties. Uh, you know, I can't recall if the count was two or two one. I think it was two and one, but I can't swear to it. And, uh, you know, I'm, they're one out away. Uh, I'm certainly sitting dead red against a guy throwing 95 against the number eight hole hitter in the lineup. Um, and he, he just happened to put it in an area where I was able to, to, to square it up. And, and frankly, even after I hit it, there was no guarantees it was going to leave because Andrew Jones, who you know, one of the best mm-hmm. defensive center fielders in, uh, ever, really, um, came close to actually catching up to it and reaching over the wall. It only cleared the wall by about six or eight inches. Um, I didn't know it was a home run until I was rounding second, and the you know this is pre-replay, and the umpire signaled that it was a home run. So um, uh, it counted. And uh, like Mike, uh, answering Mike's question, that was my my signature moment if I had to pick one. You guys go on to win that thing in 18 innings. You get to the World Series. And I think we've heard this before from players is when you get there, you're not often aware that it may be the only time you get to that situation where you're in the World Series. What did it mean to you to take uh, that Astros team to the World Series when you had guys like Biggio and Bagwell on that club and guys who'd been to the playoffs along with yourself but had never been to the top of the mountain? Yeah, we had, you know, the biggest hurdle really was clearing, getting out of the division series. The Braves had kind of been a nemesis of ours going back to 1997. Uh, You know, the Braves were in their heyday when they had Glavin, Maddox, and Smoltz. Uh, And I think even Avery uh, at the very beginning. And uh, so it was, it was certainly special. You know, you, you kind of remember certain things. I remember 1997 clinching the playoffs spot for the first time in years in Houston in the Astrodome and confetti was raining from the roof. It seemed like for hours and that was very special, but we were immediately erased in the playoffs. And, and then with every year that we went, um, we couldn't seem to get past the Braves. 98, we couldn't get past the Braves. I wasn't there in 99, but the, they couldn't get past the Braves. 
2001, we couldn't get past the Braves. And it wasn't in two th- until 2004 where we actually did get past the Braves, played the Cardinals, and lost in seven games in the LCS. Um, uh, you know, a great series by its own right. But again, didn't get to the World Series. Finally, uh, finally, we were able to do it in 2005. And it was, you know, guys like Baggy and Bish, who are Hall of Famers now, uh, I think it was it was special. It was very special to see it in Houston. It went from being a football city uh, to a baseball city, really, in, in 04 and 05. Brad, I wanted to ask you, too, in 1998, I was fortunate to be on a, a very talented club. We get to the World Series, and and you mentioned the 05 and getting past the Division Series. I don't think listeners understand that I felt that it was more pressure to get past the Division Series, get past the, 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 league, the league Championship Series, and when you get to the World Series, it's almost easier. I don't know how you felt because you're an everyday player and you're going in there and you're and you're doing that. What did you feel leading into that World Series? Uh, actually, and Swing, you corrected me. In, in 98, it was the Pod- Padres we didn't get past. It wasn't the Braves. It was you guys in, in 98. It was the Padres. But it is, you know, it's kind of a surreal feeling, or it was for me the first time we got to the World Series. You know, it's, it's odd because you're the only game in town. Uh, there's no out-of-town scoreboard. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's an odd feeling. And I think in some regard, especially the first time you get there, there's a sense of relief. Like I made the World Series. I'm willing to bet if you ask people that have been to multiple World Series and, and didn't win the first one, that in the second and or third or fourth, there was much more urgency to actually win it. I think maybe the first time there's a little bit of a happy to be there feeling for some people. Um, uh, but at some point, and I didn't get that second opportunity at some point, you, I think the, come on now, we gotta, we gotta win it. This isn't just about getting there. We gotta win it. Uh, we've seen the Dodgers have to endure that, uh, finally picking up the win in 2020. Let's go back to your beginning because I think long before a guy even dreams about playing in the world series, your first dream of even getting a chance to play pro ball, maybe getting a shot at the big leagues. And your story fascinates me because you're a 48th round pick uh, by the Yankees. You and your parents decide you're going to do a little time in an Ivy League school while you're going through the minor leagues. So you go to Dartmouth while you're playing in the Yankees farm system, picked up by the Rockies in the 92 expansion draft. And then the next year, 93, you're traded to San Diego in July. And a couple of days later, you make your big league debut. Now that, my friend, might be described as a circuitous route. What was it like for you when you finally got the call? Um, well, let's go. Let's. I'll, I'm going to work my way back to to even before I got drafted, and and, and I'm sure Sween, being from the Northeast, it was similar for you. Mm-hmm. And you know, the whole process of being drafted in in 2020 or 2019 is so different than what it was back in the in the late 80s. Uh, I was playing uh, high school ball, ball, not, you know, I was a Red Sox fan growing up. You can see my Fenway park in the background. Love that. I was, a, I was a, a Red Sox fan growing up and just enjoyed playing baseball. I wasn't really thinking about getting drafted or, or, or playing pro ball. And ironically, it was my mother who signed me up for an open tryout in Middletown, Connecticut. And that was the first time I realized that scouts might have interest. And I started to notice at high school games that there were scouts there before the game started um, going into my junior and senior year. So that was kind of the beginning. And then you go through that route, that, that's the cutest route that you mentioned. And when I finally got the call, I was in Edmonton, uh, Canada, with the Rockies Colorado Springs AAA affiliate. And got called in by Brad Mills, who's now with the Cleveland Indians bench coach for Terry Francona. And uh, Millsy told myself, Andy Ashby, and Doug Bockler that we were being traded to the Padres now. Bockler was being traded to the AAA affiliate with the Padres. And uh, Ash and I were being traded to the big leagues and meeting the club in, in Chicago uh, at Wrigley Field the next day. So, you know, it's it's an odd feeling because you're in the minor leagues and you're caught between thinking you're definitely going to make it and wondering if you're ever going to make it. And to finally get the call is there's elation and relief. So, uh, you know, you immediately, this is pre cell phone. You immediately hop on the hotel phone and, and now I did have to pay the hotel fees, but probably the international charges too, because we were in Canada. 
<laughs> and uh, call my parents, uh, call my girlfriend, who's now my wife. Um, <laughs> you, know, you, you, let, you let the people close to you know. And uh, ironically, one of the most, the two vivid memories I have are Ash and I getting to sit in first class because we were on the big league, we were going to the big leagues and Bockler having to sit in the back. So that was my first memory. <laughs> and my second memory was walking up the tunnel at Wrigley because the game was going on. It was a day game at Wrigley as, as is usual. Uh, Tony Gwynn was in the middle of a five hit game and Andy Bennis was, was throwing like a two hitter. Um, and Trevor Hoffman was one of the first per- people that introduced himself to me. who's now a good friend of mine. Uh, so um, those are my, my two most vivid memories. I didn't get into the game that day, but I started the game the next day. Yeah, let's take us into that. Uh, I, I really would love to dive into it because, as you mentioned, Trevor Hoffman introduces himself. You guys become real close, and we'll get into Trevor uh, later on. But going into that locker room, was it intimidating for you? Do you remember uh, that moment? And also, take us into that first start, if you don't mind. Yeah, it's a little intimidating because, well, part of it was one of the pitchers that was traded the other way, Greg Harris. Uh, it was Greg Harris and Bruce Hurst who went to Colorado in that trade. Greg Harris's best friend on the team was Andy Bennis. So here I am walking into a clubhouse. Andy Bennis is the horse of the pitching staff and one of the more well-known Padres at that point because it's in the middle of the uh, fire sale. And you just don't know how people are going to react. They're losing friends. And, of course, Andy was, was great. He, you know, he knows it's not its business and has nothing to do with me. Um, you're also, I'm also all of a sudden wearing a, a, the same uniform as Tony Gwynn, who's going to be in the Hall of Fame. So it is a, it's a little bit intimidating, uh, but you're also out to prove that you belong. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a little, it's kind of a combination of feelings. And, you, you know, Jim Riggleman was the manager. He told me I was starting the next day that, that afternoon. Uh, Greg Hibbard was starting for the uh, left-handed pitcher. We're starting for the Cubs. I got my first, first plate appearance I walked. And Mark Grace, when I got to first base, looked at me and said, see, it's not that hard up here. <laughs> and then uh, my second plate appearance, I hit a, a dribbling infield swinging bunt to third base for a hit. And Gracie looked at me and goes, hey, first to 3,000. <laughs> um, and I also believe I, I threw out Willie Wilson that day when my first caught stealing. Uh, and Willie was one of the, you know, the better, more well-known base dealers in all of baseball. Um, that after I believe it was that afternoon, uh, I was in cloud nine. Uh, my parents were back home watching it on WGN, uh, so they got to see me play, um, and I couldn't even tell you we won or lost. <laughs> That's the beauty of it, isn't it? Right? <laughs> um, you know what, Brad? Uh, when you start looking at it, and you mentioned some personalities, even Mark Grace, who you know, I, I think that dynamic is so cool that listeners don't understand when you get to first base and you got a first baseman like that and the interaction between uh, you and, and, and Gracie is priceless. And you remember so many of those moments. I would like to ask you that this um, there's people that are influences in your career. Did you reflect on that? And who were those guys that really took that uh, your game to the next level at the big league level? I've had influences. I think this applies to most athletes, um, and certainly professional athletes. Uh, I, I could mention my high school basketball coach who kind of taught me work ethic and, and the importance of being a good teammate. Um, I had uh, a catching coach with the Yankees in the minor leagues, uh, Mark Hill, Mark Booter. His nickname was Booter, Booter Hill, uh, who was very instrumental in teaching me some of the catching mechanics um, and some of using your brain behind the plate as well. Uh, Brian Butterfield, who's still in the game, third base coach of the Angels. He was my manager first couple of years with the Yankees and the minors, and, and he was instrumental. Um, and you, you, I think there's people along the way uh, that have certainly been influences. And, and quite frankly, sometimes you learn uh, what to do and what not to do or what you would do or would not do based on things that happen that you disagree with. It's not always someone telling you what to do or explaining something to you. It's them making a decision or, or, or doing something that you say, hey, that, to me, that's not the right way to do it or that wasn't the best 
for the team, et cetera, et cetera. You remember the biggest lesson you learned uh, when you got to the big league, something that you may have anticipated being one way, but perhaps was a misconception uh, that you then learned maybe the school of hard knocks when you got to the big league level? I, you know, the biggest, the biggest gut punch, I guess, I don't know if this fits perfectly in the box you're asking, uh, but the biggest gut punch was, was probably 1996 when I, when I started this, uh, was it 1990, sorry, 1998, I started the season, you know, seven, I think it was seven for 77 or something. This was the, the, the end of April and I was hitting under a hundred. I wasn't even on the interstate. I was like, Oh, 80, I think it was Oh, 89. I'll never forget. We're at Shea stadium. I was coming up to hit, I was hitting eighth in the lineup. This is national league format, obviously. Uh, and they announced me and they, you know, they put the stats up on this Shea Stadium, my average up there. And I heard some fan, Met fan go, oh, 89, you're the starting catcher. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I dug my way out of it and actually was back up to 250 by the time the all-star break rolled around. And the lesson I learned there is no matter how bad it's going, you can work your way out of it and had a solid season. I'm hitting probably 270 ish, 268, 270. Uh, so that was, <laughs> that was a, it, it gave me confidence that no matter how bad it was going, I could get out of it. Brad, love to ask, uh, because you mentioned him already, uh, your perspective on the career of Mr. Padre, Tony Gwynn, the late Tony Gwynn. Yeah, Tony, I really should have mentioned him as an influence because when I came over to the Padres, uh, I was only there for three years, about three years, uh, but probably more than three years. I'd say four or five years. Tony and I worked out together quite a bit in the offseason, uh, hitting down at Qualcomm. Um, and not only do you learn from Tony when it comes to hitting and, and you know, whether you're hitting off the tee or soft toss or batting practice or whatever, not only does he help you, uh, whether it's mechanically or mentally there, uh, you also learn by just listen and tell stories. Uh, so, cause you, when you're going down there three, four times, four, four times a week for the majority of the off season, you just, you, you can't help but soak something in. So, uh, Tony had a, a, a very big impact early on in my career, really the first, like I said, the first four years at the major league level. He, uh, uh not only that we played golf together and, uh, we spent time together away from field as well. So, um, you know, I never got to thank him, unfortunately, I, you know, I'm sure he knows, but there was a couple of us. He was, he was the leader of a very young team when they had the fire sale in 93 and going forward for the next few years, he was the leader and he took a few of us under, under his wing, RQC and Franco be another one. Um, and you know, we're all grateful for it. Yeah. Those influences are incredible. Uh, just being able to, to watch him and listen to the stories, as you mentioned, are, are pretty special uh, and never forgotten. An interesting aspect, too, to uh, Tony Gwynn is he went hand-in-hand hand with hitting coach Merv Rettmond. And I think a lot of people don't understand. Merv Rettmond played in the big leagues but also had a huge influence on a lot of people. Uh, but those conversations and, and what he meant to Tony Gwynn were extra special for me. Take him up to the cages. Uh, people don't realize this. He had to take an elevator in the old stadium up to the batting cages but they would spend hours and hours uh, even after games uh what was that like for you Merv Rettman and, and that that uh relationship that they had uh Merv was great I mean I'm, you know I know they had a great relationship but quite frankly I had a very good relationship with Merv as well I, I, you know he's a, he's very much a calming simplifying influence um not only from a hitting perspective but just uh, from a life perspective, he's uh, he's got a very dry sense of humor that meshed very, uh, extremely well with my sense of humor. Um, so I have uh, great memories and nothing but fondness for for Merv. As a matter of fact, you know, fast forward, he was my hitting coach in the early to mid '90s. Uh, I'll never forget. I was playing with the Dodgers at the very end of my career, probably 2009, 2010, uh, right around there. I'm not sure which. Jake Peavy's on the mound for the Padres at Petco. I'm coming up to hit. I didn't play a ton. I was the backup catcher. I didn't play a ton. Um, Peavy, obviously, you know, Cy Young caliber pitcher at the time. I step in the box. I just happen to glance over into the 
into the Padres dugouts on the first base side. And there's Merv with a glove on going like this. <laughs> he, he doesn't think I can catch up with PB's fastball. But he's ready just in case they fouled off in the dugout. And that's just a dry sense of humor. I immediately started laughing because I knew what he was doing. But that's just kind of the dry sense of humor that uh, I love about, about Merv. Uh, 18 seasons in the big leagues and you know you're so self-deprecating and you give yourself some uh, pretty good ribbing for being a light hitter but you are a 250 uh lifetime hitter that's nothing necessarily to sneeze at especially as a catcher i don't care what sweeney says that's pretty darn good <laughs> well i i i make fun of myself and sweeney can attest to this because it disarms people while i'm completely obliterating them <laughs> And that is true. Fair. That I is very away, true. I take away their ammo. If I take away their ammo and then I start firing them, they got nothing to come back at. <laughs> That's a great point. So good. <laughs> leave it to the Ivy League guy to have a, have a better angle than the rest of us. Well played. Well played. They take me back to uh, 93, as we talked about being your rookie season. In particular, when you get your hands on your first big league baseball card, your rookie card, what did that mean to you at the time? Well, I, you know what? I actually had, you remember the little uh, future stars cards that cards used to have used to have four players different yeah. from a position. When I was in double A, I was on a uh, catcher future stars card and it was, uh, God, it was myself, Jim Campanis, Dave Nilsson, and I'm forgetting the other guy. He played for uh, the Orioles in the minor leagues I played against. But anyway, uh, that was actually my first, big league card. Uh, I was, I was in double A. That was, that was, you know, a year and a half where I actually got to the big leagues. I, I know here's a side note. So Cracker Jacks also had a few of those, the exact same tops cards, but they were minis that you could get out of the Cracker Jacks box. And somebody sent me one once. This is probably 1991. Still have it in my wallet today. No kidding. I still have it. That's incredible. I, I mean, there's there's certain aspects of the game that that uh, you have some artifacts, but I think it's interesting. Uh, could you tell us what went into the thinking of your catcher's mitt and how long did that last? How did you choose that? And what glove model did you use? I used a Mizuno catcher's mitt when I first got to the big leagues. And after two, nine, three, nine, four, yeah, after two years, Mizuno stopped making my model. I kind of like a bigger catcher's mitt. Uh, always used a bigger catcher's mitt. Uh, I know a lot of catchers prefer a small one. I felt like the bigger it was, the less chance there was I'd miss it. Um, so I switched over to Franklin, uh, John Ballas. I kind of described what I wanted and uh, told him I want a little bigger catcher's mitt. So uh, John Ballas had Franklin design a catcher's mitt for me that I liked. And the, the model number was always, it, the model number was 9519, which is 1995 juxtaposed. Cause that's how I always remember the year I first started using it. So my, the model was 9519 and, and John Ballas would not even give that catcher's mitt to another catcher unless I okayed it. Wow. That's unreal. You know, you put so many good numbers uh, defensively on the board for years. Uh, interesting to me, because you mentioned at the top of the podcast, uh, you had a picture of Fenway Park behind you in your office. Uh, for our listeners to remember, the significance of that was not lost on me because you made your only all-star team in 1999, the year that the all-century nominees were named Ted Williams, and the game itself was, was at Fenway. What did that mean to you? That was, uh, I mean... To have it be at Fenway where I grew up watching games, uh, really, if I'm going to be in one all-star game, that was the perfect place to have it. Um, you know, the, the only odd thing about it was, so I had been traded to the Detroit Tigers. I had spent the majority of my career at that point, other than half a season, I spent the majority of my career in the National League. Um, got traded to the Tigers, made the all-star team in 99, I spent the entire National League batting practice out with a bunch of buddies that I knew in the National League talking to them because I didn't really know a lot of people in the American League. That's when when interleague play was uh, very limited. Um, so uh, that was a little bit different because uh, I probably had, you know, I think 
I think Trevor, I think uh, Baggy, they were both on that team. Tony Gwynn was on that National League team. So I spent I spent uh, a lot of my time hanging out with the National League guys, even though I was a Mary League All-Star. But in terms of the venue, it couldn't have been a better spot. That's where uh, my mom grew up in Brookline. We used to go visit my grandparents, and my grandfather would drop us off at Fenway Park, and we'd go to the games. We've had some guests, Brad, talk about uh, the impact of, of Ted Williams coming out of center field on the golf cart. What, what do you remember about that moment? You know, that, that was, I, I mean, I thought it was a great moment for baseball and certainly him returning to Boston. But prior to that, I had actually, in a much smaller setting, when I was with the Padres, John Moores had Ted Williams to his house for lunch. And there was a handful of us that, was, that were invited to the Moores residence uh, to meet him. So uh, there couldn't have been more than five or six of us. So I actually got an opportunity to, to have lunch, take pictures, get autographs and talk to Ted Williams one-on-one uh, about, you know, for instance, I, you know, he said this in other places, but he, he admitted we were walking through the yard to the group of us that he would not have been the hitter today that he was back then because they didn't throw sliders. He, he, he told us flat out, hmm. Uh, he said it's a much more difficult pitch to hit. Um, so I, I actually, you know, it was, it was nice at Fenway Park. I fully appreciate the importance in the grand scheme of baseball. But I, I've had the opportunity to have a more intimate meeting with him. How much you guys think uh, hitting can be taught? When I think of Ted Williams, I think there's some guys in any sport who are just so naturally gifted. They can do things we'll call them mere mortals, really can't no matter how well they're taught. How, mu- how much can a guy like Ted Williams, Brad, teach you to hit, and how much of that is just really legitimately unattainable? I mean, there's certainly some innate ability that's involved. I do think he- I do think hitting is teachable. I think we're finding out that a lot of things are teachable. You know, people used to think velocity wasn't teachable for pitchers, and they're finding out that is teachable. Um I think, but I do think, you know, I think if you took Ted Williams and put him in today's game, he'd still be a great hitter because I do think he does have that innate ability to hit. Um, but I do think teaching is hittable. Brad, when you think of it, uh, the, the fascinating dynamic of baseball is the, the catcher-pitcher relationship. You caught a lot of very talented pitchers. Uh, you mentioned Trevor Hoffman already, Randy Johnson, Billy Wagner, Roy Oswalt. Roger Clemens, Andy Pettit, Brad Lidge, to name a few. Um, what was that like? And if you had a game seven, okay, and you had a choice with all of those guys, who are you choosing to start that game and why? Um, well, for me, I think I learned early on that the my relationship with the pitchers was by far the most important part of my job. I, I learned that going back to a ball uh, with the New York Yankees, uh, Prince William affiliate. And there, there was a specific moment I can tell you about um, a guy by the name of Ed Martell, who was a pretty good prospect. I don't think he ever actually, he might've made the, the big leagues for a little bit. Um, he was throwing a bullpen side in between starts. And I went down there to catch him, you know, like, you do in the minor leagues, you, you, you kind of get abused as a catcher. They don't have bullpen catchers in the minor leagues, generally speaking. And I was being kind of lazy, so I sat on a bucket or something, like a, cra- a, milk, <clears throat> a milk crate turned upside down. And afterwards, he was pissed. He's like, what the, what the F are you doing? I mean, the, the, you know, you, you, how important to you is your batting practice? I said, yeah, I mean, he gets me ready for the game. He goes, yeah, this is my batting practice between starts. And from that point on, I said, you know what? He's right. I said, whatever they think is important, I got to be there for him. Uh, so that was a lesson learned early on. Um, and I took, it, I, I took it to heart. And then as I got into the major leagues and the last half of my career, I was preparing the sky reports in, in Houston and L.A. And um, this is and quite frankly, I was using you know, prehistoric analytics, not the stuff they have now with StatCast and, and TrackMan and all that. Uh, but I was using numbers uh, to formulate plans. And uh, I used to run the meetings, you know, from 2001 until I stopped playing. In 2010, I, I pretty much ran the meetings in terms of how we were going to approach the hitters, uh, which 
I thought I, you know, it became tedious because you had to do it every single series. But uh, I think that helped with the relationship with the pitchers because they understood that I knew their job was important and I was doing this to help them get hitters out and help us win games. So I'll never forget one time, this is uh, when Roger, when Rocket first came to Houston. So we're sitting in the big conference room and we're, uh, I'm going over the hitters on the opposing lineup. And, and this is before iPhones also. So, I, or Rocket's on his little thing, typing stuff. And I'm like, after about three or four hitters, I look at him, I go, Rocket, what the hell are you doing? I said, I'm going over the hitters here. You're texting somebody? And he was stunned. He's like, no, no, no. No, no, I'm typing in what you're saying. And he flipped it around. He was actually, t- he was actually <laughs> typing in scatter report. <laughs> um, so I, I, I think part of the reason I was able to stick around as long as I did was, was stuff like that. The relationship with the pitchers, being part of the preparation, um, and caring about their success and, and the team's success. As far as who I would actually select for game seven, uh, I've said this for years. If I needed someone to pitch a game to save the human race, hmm. Andy Pettit. No kidding. Really? That's, that's interesting. I, I, it why, why Andy, guys? Uh, just the focus he has, it, it just it pushes him. You know, he, he didn't have the best stuff. He had good stuff. He didn't have the best stuff I've ever caught. But his focus made him uh, in big situations as reliable as anyone I've seen. It's interesting. Uh, that doesn't surprise me because uh, if you think of a big game and how well he handled it and how good he was, it doesn't surprise me. It just, But you did mention uh, the type of stuff and the best stuff that you've caught. Does that stick out in your mind? Uh, you know, it's it's when you're talking about, you know, best stuff relievers, you're going to talk about closers. When you're talking about starters, it's a different animal because you, you got to have four, you know, three or four pitches. So it's tough to compare those two groups, you know, certainly Lidge and Wagner, you know, Lidge had the best slider I've ever seen. Uh, He had that one year. I don't know if it was 2004. His numbers are, are absolutely ridiculous. If, If you pull up his, his strikeouts per inning and his, his hits per inning, they were phenomenal. Uh, you know, Wagner probably had the best fastball. Um, starters, best stuff. That's a tough one. I've been asking, you know, Roy Oswalt was very good stuff-wise when he first came up. There was a guy, Wade Miller, who had unbelievable mm-hmm. stuff when he first came up and had injuries. So, you know, maybe, un- I was going to say surprisingly, maybe unsurprisingly, sometimes some of the best stuff, the guys are flashing the pan because they can't harness it. Uh, Keith Shepard was a guy who had phenomenal stuff. He threw 95, 96 when people weren't really throwing that hard like they are today. You never knew which direction the ball was going. Uh, really just filth. And he pitched in the least for a little bit, but was never able to fully harness it. Yeah, that's thoughtful answers. And, and, and I, I appreciate your answers because you're behind the plate, uh, that perspective. There's also perspective of of the hitters and type of Filthy stuff, as you mentioned. Uh, let's take us to the ninth inning. I- important of the last three outs. Uh, you already mentioned uh, Lidge and also, uh, you know, the the opportunity to go with Trevor Hoffman and Billy Wagner. Uh, a guy you want in the ninth inning when the game's on the line. Is there someone that sticks out in that group? Shoot, I could, I mean, you could take any of them. They were all so good, especially if you, if you were able to, pluck them in their prime or their best season, you know, Hoffy with the longevity and the changeup. Uh, and I, when I caught Hoffy, actually, he was throwing 95 and he certainly, because of the injury lost some of the velocity, but still had that changeup that was, uh, that was devastating and an equalizer. Uh, like I said, the Lidge was, the slider was unhittable when he was, when he was younger and throwing 96. Uh, Wagner, you can make an argument for any of them. You can really could. I, so to pick one is, you know, uh, put all three names in a hat. I'm not going to be upset with which one I pull out. Yeah, when you th- when you think about it, uh, Bradley, uh, you mentioned Trevor Hoffman, the relationship that you had and and grew over the years, even when you were on the opposition. Uh, what did that mean to you? What was Hoffy 
all about in, in your perspective? Hoffy was one of the most regimented, prepared pitchers that I've been around. You know, he was out, as you've seen, he's out there every day doing his running, usually with his shirt off. Uh, as a matter of fact, I saw him running the other day in flip-flops with his shirt off here. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not making that up. Um, he really, he feasted on the routine of getting ready. That's how he cleared his mind of what happened the night before and, and set him on the right footing for what may happen tonight. Uh, he, he's one of, you know, he's the second best closer of all time, really, if you look at statistically. Uh, and, and Hoffie and I had been friends. Like I said, he was, I think the first person that said hi to me when I, when I arrived at Wrigley Field, the first game in the big leagues, uh, he was the one that kind of organized people socially on that, that team, that first couple of years, we went to dinner or we'd go have a beer. It was just, uh, he, he got people hanging out together and, and Hoppy and I have been friends. He, he and Tracy and, and my wife and I, uh, go to dinner still on a regular basis and have for, you know, since the mid nineties when I, when I got married. So for 25 years, uh, we're still, still good friends. We, we saw him last week for dinner. Um, uh, we went on an RV trip together across the country with our families. We went on an RV trip the following year up and down in California and uh, went to Costa Rica together. So we, we've done a ton together um, and certainly still very close. You know, we, we've had Trevor on, and, and he's the first one to say making the, the Hall of Fame, it takes a village. Nobody gets there by themselves. And as we all know, he's very quick to uh, dole out uh, his appreciation for those who helped him get there. And he mentions you so often and thinks the world of you, as, as you know. What did it mean to you, and what did it feel like for you to see him inducted in Cooperstown? Oh, that was a blast. Um, you know, it was, it was nice that I had the opportunity to, to go to Cooperstown uh, because generally I'm working during the, during the summer, and I was working with the Angels as a special assistant, but I, could, I was able to finagle the schedule to get up there, and uh, we just had a great time. The whole weekend, uh, we had a good group of guys there. Mark Kotze and his wife were there. We had a group uh, group of outlaws were up there. Sweeney knows mm -hmm. what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, the day of the induction, it was a lot of fun. And, and, you know, was so proud of Trev. And I was very touched when he mentioned myself and my wife. And uh, uh, it was great. I was I was ecstatic it was a great weekend i was ecstatic that i could that i was able to be a part of it bradley the interesting to me thing to me too is i think just what uh the relationships are like between you and, and the pitchers you and trevor you and the countless men we've already talked about share a little bit about the what it's like when you go out to the mound whether it's a friend of yours or just a, a teammate your favorite mound visit story because those of us from the outside only imagine what's being said take us inside one of your favorites oh geez to pick one to just grab one out of thin air is tough to do i i can i i kind of have visions of it more of like pitcher by pitcher uh and i can remember chad qualls who pitched a very long time in big leagues he came up with houston in the early 2000s and qualls he's a great guy but he was a guy that i legitimately would go out and yell at <laughs> You know, I keep my mask on, so you can't really tell what I'm doing, can't tell what I'm saying. Uh, but but Qualsey was a guy that I would yell at. Um, I've had some some funny interactions. Uh, I had a funny one with with Roger Clemens in San Diego, uh, where I, this is this is before they had the the mountain visit rule. Uh, I went out and Roger said, "Hey, okay, we're going to go fastball split." I said, "Okay," and then I went down to the I went. And I was not a rookie at this point. I had, you know, 12 years in the big leagues or something like that. I went down and immediately put down some sign and Roger looked at me and stepped off and I and got back on, put the wrong sign down again. He calls me back out and he goes, Hey, do you remember what sequence we're using? And I go, no. <laughs> <laughs> and he puts his, he puts his hand on my head like he's my dad. <laughs> and he goes, I can't remember what it was. He goes, we're going second side. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, you know, I was, like I said, I wasn't a rookie. So I just, when I think, when I look back at it, I think, oh God, that was, that was amusing. <laughs> but, 
Brad, I, I, we, we've taken uh, the journey through your, your career and we can't not ask you the aspect when you look at the teams you played for. I see a lot of Detroit. I see a lot of Houston. Uh, the dynamic of the general managers that trade you away and they trade for you. Uh, that's been a huge aspect of your whole career. Uh, take us through your lens when it came down to all of that stuff. Well, I mean, Randy Smith was the one who traded traded me the most. He traded, really, he uh, he traded for me from Colorado to San Diego. Uh, then he went to Detroit and acquired me again because KT had taken over in San Diego. So KT traded me uh, to Detroit where Randy was. And then Randy traded me to Houston where his dad was. So his dad was the president. So his dad acquired me. <laughs> And then Houston, and then Randy reacquired me. Houston traded me back to Detroit. And then once again, a couple of years later, Randy traded me back to Houston. So I, there was a little bit of Smith involvement in my career. Um, but don't, and I know Randy's traded me away a couple of times, but Randy's always been a huge supporter of mine. So I don't, there's no ill will. And you learn that as part of the business. Um, you know, I think there are times, obviously, where general manager mandated to shade payroll, and, and that was part of it. Uh, I, I'll never forget the last time Randy traded me to Houston in 19, uh, what was it, 19, no, 2000, after the 2000 season. I went to, I, was, I went to JT Snow's son's birthday party. Uh, JT and I played together in the minor leagues in the Yankees, so my wife and I, um, went up to the birthday party. I got a call. Winter meetings were going on. I got a call from a reporter in Detroit said, I just want to get a comment on being traded back to Houston. And I said, I didn't get traded back to Houston. He goes, well, I'm hearing you did. I go, well, I can promise you I didn't because I have a no trade clause. So it turned out that it was in the works, obviously, but uh, I did have to approve it. All the details were taken care of, and I did approve it. I, you know, when I look back, I, I spent the bulk of my career in Houston as an Astro. I probably would consider myself an Astro if you asked me what team I was on. Uh, we had some very good teams. I think we went to playoffs five times when I was there. I went to World Series, so um, it all worked out. I have no complaints, but there was a little bit of a ping pong action. You know, when you were in Houston, there was that quote from uh, Phil Garner at the time. Uh, it says, I have to keep him playing because if he starts managing, he's going to be better than me. And then <laughs> and then when you go to, to L.A., I mean, Joe Torre thought the same thing of you. He thought you'd be a pretty darn good manager. When did you first give the idea of managing some serious thought? You know, I probably started thinking about it really my last couple of years playing maybe my last year in Houston, last three years, so 2008, 2009, 2010, uh, I would, earlier, prior to that, I would, you know, Garner was very good about explaining things to me if I had a question, you know. So Gar kind of started me on that track. And then when I when I got to L.A. with the Dodgers and Joe was there, I knew my career was, I mean, I was 40 years old. I knew I wasn't going to be playing much longer. So I, at that point, I started paying attention a lot more to what Joe was doing and situation, situationally what was happening and his decisions. Um, and, at, you know, shortly after I got done playing, really within a year or two, I started getting calls about being interviewed and initially balked at him, took a couple, not all of them, uh, you know, but finally, I just said, you know, I'm, I'm getting, I can't keep turning down everyone or they're going to stop calling. So uh, in 2000, following the 2013 season, that's when I, I, I started. I kind of went all in. And when you go all in, Brad, you, you take the job in Detroit. You, you manage four seasons, but you're, you're coming behind a very successful manager in Jim Leland. Uh, did you call anybody to ask how that's going to be? Uh, because obviously you ask for advice as a manager, but uh, replacing a legend like that, uh, it has its uh, difficulties as well. Yeah, and they've been very good. So I, I think, you know, it's, you, you want to have a good team. So that was a plus. But with a good team comes expectation. So um, I, I, didn't, I wasn't really concerned about replacing Jim Leland. Uh, I, I didn't 
had no urge to be Jim Leland. Um, that, that never bothered me. I, I've, I've gotten that question a lot. That never bothered me. Uh, you know, even when I went to, and certainly when I went to the Angels after Soch uh, retired or stepped down or whatever, however you describe it, I don't know. I think, I think Soch probably would still manage actually, but uh, I, I just, I'm not here to be somebody else. If, if what I do doesn't work, then it doesn't work. You know, with all the experience now that you've acquired, watching the way the game's developed too over time with analytics and the like, and I know you're a cerebral player as well as a manager, uh, but how do you square those two and how does it enter into your feeling toward ever managing again? Well, I, I'd like to give it another shot. You know, I felt like it got kind of cut short in Anaheim, uh, quite frankly. And, and if you were to ask me of the five years I managed, I would tell you my year in Anaheim was by far the best manager I've been. Um, when it comes to analytics, I think analytics are not going away. Uh, I think sometimes it gets overdone, um, but there are, and like you said, I, you said cerebral, but I, going back to my, my days as a catcher preparing sound reports, uh, I pay some credence to numbers. Does that mean numbers are always right? No, it, it actually, they're not always right. Uh, and sometimes your eyes are. So uh, they're not going away. I think you better know what you're talking about if you want to manage. You better understand them. Um, but I think if, if the general manager doesn't allow you the freedom to make decisions at times, uh, then that's not going to sit well with the players that you're trying to direct. So uh, there's definitely a balance. Does that take time, Brad, to, uh, I mean, spending a year in Anaheim, that that's you got to go through the, the channels and be able to mesh uh, the front office with the players and vice versa. Uh, does that take time or did you feel like you had that uh, when you stepped into that job? In Anaheim? Yeah. Uh, Anaheim, it actually worked seamlessly, but I'll tell you why. I was there the year before as a special assistant. Mm -hmm. So I knew all the people in the front office, uh, not only the, the GM Billy Epler, but the assistant GMs and the baseball office people, I knew them all and they all knew me. I sat in the box with them. So they were, they were very comfortable. Once I was named manager, they were all very comfortable coming down and talk to me because we had done it. Uh, and, and I would say the relationship between myself and the front office in Anaheim uh, was, was great. Uh, and I'm quite frankly, I think they'd probably tell you the exact same thing. When you think of it, Brad, uh, I think an aspect of, of the game is is watching the best player play. Um, he's only played three postseason games, but uh, putting your eyes on Mike Trout every single day, what was that like? Because we all understand how, how great of a player he is. He continues to get better and better, MVP candidate every single year. Uh, but I don't think the whole fan base of baseball gets to appreciate Mike Trout for what he's worth. Uh, Trout, he's, I mean, you can see what he's worth on the baseball field or in the batter's box. All you can do is watch some games. The best thing about Trout is the guy. He's, he just loves being around his teammates. He's a regular person. Uh, he doesn't necessarily need the fanfare. I'm sure he'll, you know, I'm sure he'll enjoy his contract, but he doesn't need the <laughs> fanfare. He doesn't need the extra attention. He, uh, he's just a regular guy who wants to hang out with his teammates and, poke fun at each other and succeed and win games. Uh, that's the best thing about Trout. You know, I, you know, it's funny. I think about some of the players I had, I've had in five years, I don't know if any managers had this many hall of fame players. You talk about Miguel Cabrera, Justin Verlander, Max Scherzer, Mike Trout, Albert Pujols. Um, I mean, how the heck did I not make win a World Series? What the hell? <laughs> it's a fascinating point you make. You know, when you, when you consider all that uh, you just discussed with the players you've had and, and the experiences you've had and some tragedy as well when you were in Anaheim with the passing of Tyler Skaggs, uh, when you look ahead to what might be your next opportunity, what do you think is the greatest lesson you've learned about being a manager and what it's going to take to be successful if you're able to get that next stop? Uh, I think nowadays you really, you almost have to turn a blind eye to everything media related. Unfortunately for you guys, cause you're in that, well, you guys aren't really in that. You're, you're more game in game, but there's so much that goes on uh, 
with social media and second guessing and, and, and front offices get pressured into removing guys they know are good managers uh, because the fans are upset about one particular move and it just makes no sense whatsoever. You know, I feel, I, I feel bad for, for Kevin Cash. You know, he's fortunate he's in Tampa it's or St. Pete, wherever you want to call it. It's a small media market. Uh, it's not a very well-known team. Um, and I'm not saying I would have taken Blake Snell out or not, but here's, here's the facts. The Tampa Bay has basically done this system for a couple of years where if they're within two runs either way or so, uh, and they have available bullpen, um, their starter doesn't go very far third time through the order. That's just how they do it. And guess what? They've been pretty damn successful. So Snell looked great, but they've, you know, if you're sitting in that dugout, so God, he looks good. But this is what we've done, and we, we're sitting here in the World Series. Uh, so I understand why they, why he did it. That's how they got there. Again, I don't know if I would have done it, but I, I feel bad for him because if he doesn't stick to the plan, his people are upset with him. If he does stick to the plan, it doesn't work. Baseball fans are upset with him. And, you know, and a lot of times as a manager, you are in this no-win situation. And it's all based on the outcome, whether it was successful or not. And uh, that's part of what I'm talking about when I say you, you really have to turn a blind eye to what the media and social media is saying about you. You have to do what you believe is right. And if it, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. You sure you want to do this again? <laughs> the way you said it, I'm like, holy smoke, it doesn't sound appealing at all. Yeah, I'll just get rid of all my social media accounts. <laughs> Well, Brad, I got to tell you, uh, you've always been a, a treat to watch as a player, uh, certainly as a manager, and from, from all accounts, uh, fans as well as your teammates, tremendous amount of respect in the game, and we appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us. No, my pleasure. I enjoyed it, guys. Thanks so much for checking out Major League Beginnings. If you had as much fun as we did, we hope you'll go ahead and hit the subscribe button where you usually download your podcast from. It could be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.